Well, we've written these lessons, though, because just because we're Pentecostal doesn't mean we understand why. And that really is, is the shame of it, that folks come to church and thank God for that, and we catch things and thank God for it, but we don't always know or understand why we believe what we believe. And you should never say, well, the preacher says. That's an unacceptable answer. You need to say, what does the Bible say? And uh, we were in South Africa ministering, and they do a lot of preaching in South Africa because teaching is, is a little bit harder. I'm all for preaching, but I'm not really a preacher so much as I am a teacher. So one of the things I exhorted the pastors on is I said, out of 1 Timothy, that we have to reprove and exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. Doctrine is emphasized almost, I think, 19 times in Timothy, Timothy, and Titus. So doctrine is very critical for the strength of any believer. Timothy, Timothy, and Titus are the pastoral epistles. And if doctrine is spoken of 19 times, it lets you know the emphasis that God puts on pastors and doctrine. And so one of the things I encourage those pastors is that we have to have more doctrine taught because our churches can know he's the lily of the valley, but where does it say he's the lily of the valley? We're the head, not the tail, but where does it say we're the head, not the tail? I'm more than a conqueror. I'm a world overcomer. Great, they hear you exhort on that, but do they know where they can find that for themselves? So we're spirit-filled around here, real spirit-filled, according to the Bible. Everybody who's born again, of course, has the Holy Spirit, but there's a difference in having him within and having him upon you. We're tongue talkers, but maybe not all of us understand what it means to be a tongue talker. Maybe not all of us can prove it from the scriptures. You should be able to prove the baptism of the Holy Ghost from the Bible and understand why other folks don't believe in it. And so we've written these lessons to kind of address all of that. So this is our second lesson. Uh, We call this the the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Our overall curriculum is called the gift of tongues because there's different kinds of tongues and different usages of the gift of tongues. This one in particular, this lesson is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, as another side note, on our way out of country, I got a call from a minister friend of mine and he was telling me, he said, the statistic we just heard, that this is two weeks ago, I guess it's within the last month. He said, out of this major Pentecostal denomination and he named the denomination, he said, they now estimate only one-third of those Pentecostal pastors are spirit-filled now. Major Pentecostal denomination. And he said of that third, he said they estimate only about 10% of them actually pray in tongues in their services. And so we see an onset or a buffeting against the gifts of the Spirit. And this is unacceptable because the Holy Spirit is still God. And if we're ashamed of the Holy Spirit, we're ashamed of God. Just like some churches are ashamed of Jesus, they want to talk about God. They won't ever say the name of Jesus. Well, you you got to talk about the Holy Ghost too, because it's three in one. And if you're ashamed of one, you're ashamed of all of them. You don't get to pick and choose. You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, unless you're a Jesus-only heretic, right? And we're not. And so we need the Holy Spirit, but we also need to understand his workings and his moving. So for the next eight weeks, we're going to cover this. As you know, I don't write uh, curriculum without an abundance of scripture, And so that's what we have all this. So let's look at this. Hebrews 6, 2 talks about of the doctrine of baptisms. We understand there's doctrines of baptisms, plural, not singular. There's not just one baptism. And I wish more preachers would get a hold of that, that it's a plural. There's multiple baptisms. We covered that in the last lesson. Four baptisms in the New Testament. Three of them apply to the born-again believer. One of them is John's baptism. It's been done away with or fulfilled when Christ established his church. So we've covered the four New Testament baptisms. 
John's baptism passed away at the resurrection of Christ in the beginning of the church. The remaining three baptisms are still for the New Testament believer. And each of these baptisms follows the same formula, but with different ingredients. So here's the baptism formula. And again, just as a review, the word baptism or baptist or baptize is from the Greek word baptizo, which means to submerge as with dying something. And it's noted that with, with that usage, when you dye a garment in and die and you submerge it, it comes out totally changed. And you can't really reverse it. It's an irreversible change. And so that's the pattern that follows. So here's the baptism formula. Someone baptizes someone into something. And notice we have the fill in the blanks here. This is like Mad Libs. Someone baptizes someone into something yielding a unique supernatural change. All right? So there's three baptisms remaining now for the New Testament believer. Let's look at each one of these as it follows this simple pattern because it's called the doctrine of baptisms and we need to understand the doctrine of baptisms. So the baptism into the body of Christ, which we understand is the born again experience, that is the Holy Spirit baptizing a lost person into the body of Christ, making them a new creature. That's spoken of in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We all by one spirit have been baptized into one body, partakers of the same spirit. So the Holy Spirit, when you're born again, the Holy Spirit takes you and baptizes you into the body of Christ, making you a new creature in Christ Jesus. Baptism, excuse me, water baptism, a believer baptizes a believer into water for the remission of sins. So that's the unique change, the remission of sins. I will admit I don't fully understand how baptizing in lake water, city water, tap water, Jordan River water, Dead Sea water, or dirty water, or water in a latrine, or water on the military base, I don't know how that remits sins, but it does. And I don't think anybody fully understands it, but there's always been lots of supernatural testimonies of people being water baptized and supernatural things happening. Miss, uh, Miss Vera tells the story when she got water baptized here 18 years ago, she said she came up out of the water and the power of God came on her. She said she looked back and the water was black. And she said, Pastor, I looked at Pastor Vaughn and she said, I could tell he saw the same thing too. And just discerning of spirits, just a supernatural thing. I've never seen that. But it was, it's her testimony. And she said, if you were in that service, again, 18, 19 years ago, she said the spirit of God fell when she was water baptized. Uh, my Baptist friends were telling me, they couldn't understand it or explain it doctrinally. She said, doctor, uh, this friend of mine, he said, we go to Zimbabwe. He said, they'd get born again. We'd take them down to the river and they'd come up out of the river being baptized and demons would come out of them. This is a Baptist man. He said, now, I don't know why the demons were in them after they got born again, but it was when we brought them out of the water that the demons began to manifest. So there is something supernatural about it. Now, I know we, real, we live in an area where the water baptism to salvation doctrine is strong. And because of that, we've probably leaned too hard against water baptism, trying not to get caught up in another doctrinal area that says you have to be water baptized to go to heaven. But it is still producing a supernatural change called the remission of sins. Not the permission to sin, but remission, as in it goes into dormancy. And, and negates the thing. It's remitted. And it lets us know when we've been water baptized, we ought to be living cleaner. Now, you can go get dirty if you want to. And uh, you need to repent of that. Amen. So that brings us to the baptism in the Holy Ghost. Jesus Christ baptizes a believer into the Holy Ghost, producing a spirit-filled believer. 
Now we understand that. Now it's neat, baptism of the body of Christ is the work of the Holy Spirit, but baptism of the Holy Ghost is the work of Jesus Christ. Water baptism, well the Holy Spirit doesn't water baptize anybody, you baptize somebody. It doesn't just have to be the preacher baptizing, but you're, you're free as well to baptize a convert. Nothing wrong with you get somebody born again in your dorm room or your apartment and you fill the bathtub and say, now we're gonna dunk you and baptize them right there in the bathtub. Nothing says you can't do that. So this proves us there is a subsequent experience. Most Christians are familiar with the first two baptisms, baptism into the body, though they don't teach it as that. They call it being born again or being saved or making a decision for Christ or giving your heart to God, and that's great, however you want to call it. And everybody's familiar with water baptism. Everybody understands water baptism. But many Christians stop there, usually having never been taught about the third baptism or perhaps failing to seek it. Every Christian must understand that there is a subsequent experience to the new birth and water baptism. It is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, again, this is the doctrine of baptisms, Hebrews chapter 6. All right? Now, let's begin with Jesus and see how he taught a difference between being born again and being spirit-filled. These are critical uh, parables or types and shadows that Jesus Christ taught because he was preparing his disciples for the coming church age, which was still a total mystery while he was on the earth. Because even in his last sermon, his last discipleship class with the Christians in Acts 1, they said, will you at this time restore the kingdom? They still didn't see what was about to happen. They were still totally blind. They had no idea he's about to ascend to heaven. Is Is it time to start your kingdom? He said, it's not for you to know the times or seasons, but wait in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. So he's still trying to prepare them for something they still are totally clueless about. It just lets you know that even though Jesus Christ is in your midst and you're born again, it doesn't mean you understand anything that's going on. We're just not that smart. We'd like to think we are. We might be educated, but that doesn't make us smart. And so here's to his 11 apostles and the crowd and they're still thinking, all right, the church, I mean, the kingdom starts now, right? And, he's, and the Lord's saying, the church starts now. What's the church? Stick around in Jerusalem, you'll figure it out. I'll help you. <laughs> Jesus taught about both the coming new birth experience, being born again, and about being filled with the Spirit. So let's look at two comparisons here. John chapter 4, verse 13 and 14, this is what we call the wells of everlasting life. Jesus answered and said unto the woman at the pool, uh, the, the well of the... Uh, Uh, Samaritan woman at the well. Whosoever drinks of this water shall thirst again, talking about the well water. But whosoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. We know this talks about salvation. We, We as Baptists saying, I've got a river of life flowing out of me, spring up a well. Even as Baptists, we sang the difference between a river of life and a well. Spring up a well, splish, splash in my soul. We know it's salvation. You drink of Jesus, in you is an everlasting well, just bubbling up water. We know water represents the Holy Spirit, all right? Here, Jesus is addressing the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus was in line at this well behind the Samaritan woman. He equates the coming salvation experience, the new birth or everlasting life, to being a spiritual internal well springing up, or as the Greek says, leaping up with eternal life. Wells produce, and this is what's critical, wells produce life-giving water by springing up water out of an aquifer, but wells can only water one person at a time. So he's talking to her about personal salvation. One woman, one well, talking about personal salvation. Who's the, who's the crowd there? One woman. 
What is she sitting at? A well. So he takes the opportunity to explain the born-again experience that's coming. A well coming up for one person at a time. You can water more than one person. You just can't water them but one at a time, right? So we understand that. So then let's jump over to rivers of living water. This the, the well of Samaritan woman was John chapter four, three chapters later, John chapter seven. Jesus seems to preach a very similar parable or similar sermon. Now we compare the water well of John four to the river of John seven. So John seven, 37 and 38, in the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried. Now all of Jerusalem would have been gathered here. So he's not talking to one person. That's why he's crying or yelling. You know, you don't have to yell when it's just one person. You have to yell when it's a great crowd. So he tells a multitude of people, if any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. So we instantly see the comparison or the contrast. One is a well springing up. One is a river flowing out. One is spoken to one person. One is spoken to a multitude of people. Both have to come to Jesus to receive. This brief sermon was yelled at the final day, the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles. This feast celebrated God's 40 years of provision for Israel in the wilderness when they dwelt in tents covered only by God's glory cloud. And this feast had observed several rites. So let me look at this because this is critical to understanding the context with which Jesus is interrupting. This is their greatest and most celebrated of all feasts. The Feast of Tabernacles was celebrated again the time of 40 years in the wilderness. And uh, I don't know how many of these notes I actually have. One, uh, one great theologian said uh, from Josephus' day, if you had never been to the Feast of Tabernacles, you never knew what celebration and joy was all about because the whole city was alive at this thing. So let's look at these certain points of, of worship during this festival so we can understand why Jesus is segueing and tying this feast into this thing, this message. Number one, the people dwelt in homemade booths made from tree branches. That's part of the Feast of Tabernacles. It represents the tents they lived in for 40 years. And they did this for seven days. The people celebrated with tremendous rejoicing. The Babylonian Talmud records, he uh, who has not seen the rejoicing at the place of the water drawing has not seen rejoicing in his life. This is also called the Feast of Water Drawing. Uh, number three, in later generations, the water ceremony was added. Water was ceremoniously drawn by a, a priest out of the well of Siloam, which by interpretation is the word sent, where Jesus sent somebody to be healed. Also, the Jews called this waters of Siloam the waters of creation. And he marched up to the temple through the water gate. So in this, in this celebration, what they did is a priest would go down the stairs from the temple mount to the waters of Siloam and he would draw it out, water out with this giant golden pitcher, you know, a big old fancy pitcher. And all of Israel would line the stairs going up and they would rejoice because they knew where he was going. He was going up the stairs to the temple to pour it out as an offering. And so you can kind of see how this thing is going to build and build and build because the closer he gets, they're about to just be ecstatically climactic and shout and they did this every day. And this was the last day and the greatest day. So you know the whole city's just a roar. This is the day Jesus stands up and interrupts them. You're, you're ruining their party. <laughs> so this priest would march up the temple through the water gate. During this procession, the whole city was gathered, shouting, playing trumpets and flutes, singing and waving bouquets of palm, willow, and myrtle branches. And they would also quote Isaiah 12, 3, with joy, shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. 
So that's what they're doing at this great day, the last day, the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles. The eighth day, this great day of the feast, the celebration climax. This is why Jesus had to stand and yell. He had to be heard above everything else. And what did Jesus cry out? Now, now they're excited because they're celebrating God keeping them for 40 years in the wilderness. They're celebrating living in tents, being covered by nothing but the glory cloud. They're celebrating because they saw a river come out of a rock, right? And they're, they're kind of reliving all this, though only ceremoniously, with a pitcher of water from the well of creation. And Jesus interrupts all of this and says, basically, you think this is awesome? You think this is cool? You think what we did 2,000 years ago for you Jews was something else? If you believe on me, out of you, and that hard rock of a heart of yours shall flow rivers of living water. Totally different than a little well. What did he say? What did he scream? And the whole city's excited because the priest is coming to pour out this libation offering. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Rivers are, and wells are similar in that they both provide water, but here the difference is stop. Wells can only water one at a time while rivers water entire nations at a time. You think about the great rivers of the world, the Yangtze, the Congo, the Amazon, the Nile, they flow through multiple nations. They water millions of people in one passage. A well, you got Ma and Paul on the plantation, lowering down the bucket. That's all you can water. Maybe a family at best. You know, you get born again, salvation will come to your family. But you get the baptism of the Holy Ghost, salvation will come to a nation. That's the difference. We can, you can already see a distinct difference. So there has to be a difference in this experience. The Feast of Tabernacles was also called the Feast of Ingathering or the Feast of Harvest. So it almost seems that you need this river to actually harvest something. You know, you can't water a field with a well. You have to have rivers. You, have, you build irrigation channels off of rivers to water fields and plantations. So it's interesting, he chooses the Feast of Harvest to celebrate the Holy Ghost because it's all types and shadows of what Jesus Christ is going to do in the church age. Whether you're harvesting wheat fields or souls, you're gonna need a lot more water than just a well. And I have found the greatest missionaries around the world had to have a lot more than just their salvation because you gotta have a supernatural power source behind you more than just salvation for your household. This discourse was not just another way of teaching the well of life from John 4. John gives us the interpretation. Thank God John gave us that. Otherwise, you could theologically argue this is just another way of teaching John 4. John gives us the interpretation. John 7, 39, the next verse says, But this he spake of the Spirit, not salvation. But this he spake of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given because that Jesus was not yet glorified. He gives us the interpretation. This is talking about receiving the Holy Spirit. All right, we see these two awesome uh, allegories here, Jesus teaching it differently. Two different experiences. The Holy Spirit was not given until Jesus had ascended to heaven in Acts chapter one through verse, uh, chapter two, verse four. Wells are for personal watering. Rivers are for watering uh, the well uh, as well. Jesus said, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the entire world. But he said, you can't do that until you have the Holy Spirit. Now think about those early apostles. They were born again. Jesus breathed on them in John 21 and said, receive ye the Holy Ghost. He breathed on them, the breath of life, receive ye the Holy Ghost. But the Holy Ghost didn't come for another 50 days. So there again, you have two experiences, receiving the spirit of God and salvation in John 21, and then having to wait 50 more days for the Holy Ghost in Acts 2. 
So you see the pattern repeated, a subsequent experience. This is all critical if you're going to argue with people who are so determined they don't want more of God. Because if you can show it to them from the scriptures, then you can say, all right, now I've shown it to you from the scriptures, you're going to tell me you don't want what the Bible promises you. And some people say that's exactly what I'm saying. I'm not interested in what the Bible is telling me. And a lot of churches are that way. Because when you let the Holy Spirit operate in your church, people are going to leave your church. But I'd rather people leave and the Holy Ghost stay than people stay and the Holy Ghost leave. Amen. I happen to be dumb enough to just want everything God has for me and, and smart enough to realize I don't always understand it. Amen. We in America have gotten too educated to appreciate God. We've educated ourselves so that we have, we've educated the need for God right out of our lives. And now that we have churches based on market-driven philosophies, we really don't need the Holy Spirit. Because the Lord said, if you, if you glorify me and lift me up, I'll draw all men. Well, no, we don't need you to draw, Lord. We have our campaigns. We have YouTube and Facebook and, and we've got billboards and, 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 you know, we've got all the fun stuff. God bless us. Amen. Born of the Spirit. So let's look at some other, another example here. Jesus answered, John chapter 3, Very, verily I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Here Jesus called the born-again experience being born of the Spirit. Not Spirit-filled, born of the Spirit. Acts 1, 4, and 5, he called, and he, he being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which you have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Different expression. One of them's called being born of the Spirit. One of them's called being baptized with the Spirit. Some of Jesus' last words to born-again disciples were about being baptized with the Holy Ghost, not being born of the Spirit. Different expressions, different terms for different experiences. These guys are born again. He's not talking to them about being born of the Spirit. He's talking about them being baptized with the Spirit. They're already born again. They're disciples. They serve Jesus Christ. They believe in his resurrection. They call upon his name. They're there at his last sermon. And what is a sermon about? Being baptized in the Holy Spirit. There's a huge difference between being born again and being baptized. This is the same Spirit, but totally different experiences. All right, so I want to go through now and look at several examples that prove that there's a subsequent experience to being born again. And now one of the arguments you'll always find is, well, those tongue talkers, they say, if I don't speak in tongues, I don't have the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying that at all. Not, not at all. No. If you're born again, you got the Holy Spirit living within you. You're sealed with the Spirit. That's what Ephesians 1 says. Ephesians 4 says you're sealed with the Spirit. We're just saying you haven't been baptized in the Spirit. It's all right. If you don't want it, don't have it. But we, ha- we can't deny what the scriptures say. And we can't, you know, just be ignorant and put all these terms together in one bag and just say they're all synonymous when they're clearly not. Our job is to study to show ourselves approved. You know, there's a difference between being born and being baptized. And Jesus is talking about two different expressions. They're not the same. So here's examples of what we've just taught, but seen in the book of Acts. If Jesus talked about it, and Acts is the beginning of the fulfillment of everything he taught, we ought to be able to find these examples, and very well we do. Examples of this subsequent experience, we can easily find examples of the baptism of the Holy Spirit happening to born-again people, thus proving there is, in fact, a subsequent experience to salvation. And don't you also think it's rather arrogant to think you've got all you, of God you're going to get when you got saved at the age of seven? 
There's nothing to grow into. There's nothing to, to mature into. When you got saved, that's all there is? No, that's ridiculous. When I turned 19, actually 18, I began to get hungrier and hungrier for God, and I was raised Baptist, but I could tell there was something more out there than what the Baptists had tapped in. Not that I tapped into everything the Baptists had, by no means at all. Still don't have everything the Baptists have pioneered for 200 years. But I could tell there was more than the direction they were headed in. And that hunger within me somehow landed me among Pentecostals. It's funny how that's where it lands you. It didn't land me among this denomination or that denomination, it landed me among a bunch of different flavors of Pentecostals, vineyards and non-denominationals and charismatics and Pentecostals and word of faith. And I was just making, I was a church tramp. I just, and tramp doesn't mean dirty, it just means you travel, you know, like Charlie Chapman was the tramp. And so I was just, you know, checking out this church, checking out that church, checking out that fellowship, checking out that group of believers. And the other thing is when my heart was this hungry, I, all of a sudden I'd find myself having discussions with spirit-filled college kids. And how does that happen? And all of a sudden, I remember one conversation at my house when we lived over here. And uh, I said, I just want to know more. She said, well, I don't know any scriptures. And I said, I thought your parents are pastors. They are. And you don't know any spirit. She said, let me call my mom. So she calls her mom up on the house phone because we didn't have cell phones. And that's 96. We didn't have, that's 95, October 95. We didn't have house, cell phones. We had house phones back then. So she calls her mom up. And I remember the scripture she gave me was Jude building yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. And it's just interesting. When I got hungrier for God, it was the Holy Ghost that kept being thrown in my face. It wasn't, it wasn't more rituals. When I got hungrier for God, it wasn't more good works. When I got hungrier for God, it wasn't more uh, rites and ceremonies. It wasn't any of that. It was the Holy Ghost. That's what kept being thrown into my face when I said, Lord, there's got to be more of you. Lord, I want more of you. And everywhere I went, people were being sent across my path to talk to me about this baptism of the Holy Spirit. So then I was working at the mobile home dealership and I said, Lord, you got to give me a godly worker. I'm tired of these carnal college people. You got to give me a godly coworker. And the Lord sends me a spirit-filled guy from California. And every day he talks to me about being spirit-filled. And I remember one time we were remodeling the, the, the offices and he said, what do you think about speaking in tongues? And I had never thought about it. I said, I don't know. Uh, I think maybe some people take the Bible too literally. That was my stupid answer. I think maybe some people take the Bible too literally. He got mad. He said, too literally? Too literally? The people, Christians don't take the Bible literally enough. I was like, I don't know. Why are you asking me this? I'm just wanting more of God. Why are you talking to me about tongues? And then there was one day we were working and we were remodeling another all part of the offices. And he literally stopped and taught me about the baptism of the Holy Ghost for probably two or three hours. And I remember our bosses would come by and want to interrupt and just didn't even dare. I mean, we sat there and did nothing for two hours while he taught me. And so before long, that just started. My hunger, everybody I was running into was telling me about the Holy Ghost. And yet in private, my heart said, Lord, I just want more of you. How did it come? with the power of the Holy Ghost. It is really a detrimental shame that churches claim they want to give God, excuse me, they want to give people more of God. And yet what they've done is they've stripped the Holy Ghost out of their church. What they really don't want is more of God. They want more of church. And so we have to, as Christians, understand all these scriptures because people are hungrier for God more than ever before. And who are we to say, to presume whether they want the Holy Ghost or not? If they want God, they want God. This is God. We are the ones that hold the words of eternal life. We ought to be able to tell them, if you're looking for more of God, this is what it is. It's nothing else. This is it. This is the more of God you're looking for. 
Well, I don't believe that. Well, then why did you come to me? You said you thought I could give you more of God. This is the more of God I have to give you. Amen. So let's look at some examples here. The disciples, the 11 disciples, Judas had hanged himself, so we're down from 12, were the first to experience both. After his resurrection, the Lord breathed on them in John 20, 22 and said, receive you the Holy Ghost weeks before Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So here's an example of number one, being born again and then still needing the Holy Ghost. They had the Holy Ghost, but they hadn't received the Holy Ghost. Is Jesus schizo? No. We see the two experiences. The Samaritans. These new converts were saved and water baptized. This is the Acts chapter 8 revival. This is an awesome revival. Uh, They were saved and water baptized under Philip's evangelistic ministry. Peter and John went down to these new converts and to pray with them to receive the Holy Ghost. Now, I think this is interesting. This evangelist works signs and wonders. The whole city rejoices because demons came out of people. They were healed, born again. And Peter and John got word that Samaria had received the gospel. And so they go down there to get them the Holy Ghost. Now, isn't that fascinating? The apostles said they're born again. The demons have come out of them. They're healed, but they don't have enough. They don't have it all. They've received Christ. They've received healings. They've received deliverance, but they haven't received the Holy Ghost yet. Now, where Peter and John don't know what they're doing, or Peter and John very much as foundational pillars of the church, they know what they're doing, and they know these, this Samaria down here, they're open to anything God has for them. Let's get down there. Let's give them the Holy Ghost. So then the question arises, why couldn't Philip give it to them? Maybe Philip didn't understand it yet. Philip at this point would have been just a baby evangelist. Because the first reference for Philip before this is he's just a deacon. He's taking out trash. He's just faithful to clean the local house. He's taking care of the widows. He's serving tables. This may be his first rodeo. And when it's your first rodeo, you don't know what you can and can't do. You're not really sure. So far, the only time you've experienced the baptism of the Holy Ghost is on the day of Pentecost when nobody laid hands on anybody. It just happened. So it may be that Philip just, he was just a baby evangelist. This is his first crusade we have record of. And what does he know? But Peter and John, they know something a little bit more. So they go down there. And so these new converts receive the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands, not through a prayer of salvation. That's what verse 17 says. It is obvious something supernatural happened when they received the Holy Ghost because the newly saved sorcerer, Simon, wanted the same power. The Bible says there that and when Simon saw it through the laying on of the hands of the apostles, the Holy Ghost was given. He offered them money, saying, Give unto me this power that whosoever lay hands on might receive the Holy Ghost. And Peter says, Your money perish with you. What a harsh word for a baby Christian. Go to hell. Because you thought the Holy Ghost could be purchased with money. I thought we were supposed to be all tender and snugly and hug people and put an arm around them. Peter said, your money perish with you. And, and, and the sorcerer repents. Pray for me that this thing not, might not befall me. But notice that something so spectacular, it doesn't say they speak in tongues, but the Bible says, and when they saw that through the laying on of the hands the Holy Ghost was given, the sorcerer, the guy that works voodoo power, the guy that has supernatural power running through him before he's born again, he says, I want this power. How much do you want for it? He's just a baby Christian. Obviously, something very supernatural happened. It was an outward demonstration because the local sorcerer wants this new power. It wasn't they just laid hands on him and nothing happened, seemingly. There had to be an outward manifestation. So we see here with the Samaritan revival, they get born again, they receive Christ, and then Peter and John, this is probably the next weekend service because it took some time to travel, 
They lay hands on them and they get this Holy Ghost. Look at the Ephesian disciples here. This is one of my favorite stories in the whole book of Acts. So much to learn from it. The 12 men in Acts 19 were already born again. The Bible calls them disciples. And the people, uh, and Paul doesn't even bother to preach to them about Jesus. They already have him. So what does he say? He says, have you the first thing Paul asks them is, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? Think about that statement. He finds, traveling through the upper coast, he finds certain disciples, and he says unto them, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? All right, so what does it take to be born again? Believe. These guys are disciples, so they're doers of the word. They're, they're not just Sunday morning Christians. The Bible says disciples, and Paul says, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And what's their response? We don't know whether there be any Holy Ghost. They didn't even know the Holy Ghost existed. They'd never heard of a Holy Ghost. But somehow they're still born again. Somehow they're still disciples. And so Paul says, so then to what were you baptized? John's baptism. They, he says the word baptism, they instantly think water. John's baptism. All right, verily John did baptize with the water of repentance, saying that you should look on him that should come after him, that is on Jesus. And the Bible says, and when they heard this, they were water baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they get our second kind of baptism. And then the Bible says Paul lays his hands on them and they speak in tongues and prophesy. I mean, you got all four baptisms spoken of right there in this one instance. Very clear. He doesn't even bother to teach the resurrection. He doesn't bother to teach the cross. These guys already have it. His first question is, you're born again. Yes. Have you been spirit filled yet? What spirit? What is spirit filling? What's the Holy Ghost? We didn't know there's a Holy Ghost. And that's where he begins to teach. And we have his little sermon there. So you see, again, the, these born-again experience, and you see something subsequent. So this lesson, I'm wanting to show you over and over again, biblical evidence and proof that there's something beyond being born again. Now, again, I am preaching literally to the choir because you guys are all born again, and you're all spirit-filled. So I'm not teaching this to further your life much, but to give you doctrine so you can help other people. I was able to get spirit filled because people knew their scriptures. And for and this, this one girl who had to call her mama. Well, thank God her mama knew the scriptures. But I believe with all of my heart, we're going to start to see folks who want more and more of God. A couple years ago, we had somebody come from one of our local donut churches. And they said, I've come here to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And I said, what church do you go to? And they said, you know, this church. And so my heart says donut church. But I thought, well, that used to be spirit-filled. And I said, they don't lay hands on people there and get them spirit-filled? No. I said, well, what makes you think we can do it? Well, I've been on your website. <laughs> All right. And I said, well, okay. And, and they said, he said this. He said, I just want to have everything the, Holy, uh, the Lord Jesus died for me to have. And, uh, and he said, and also my wife needs healing. And I said, they don't lay hands on the sick at your church? No, not that I've ever seen. Well, that church used to be spirit-filled. How do you know we do that? Saw your website? Well, thank God. And so we laid hands on him to get spirit-filled. He, uh, my wife and Ginger and I laid hands on him. And then we prayed for him and his wife. They came to one service. But my, my question in my heart was, if you know we have more of God here, why would you stay there? If my website is enough to convince you that we've got God, why would you dare go back to that cesspool of lukewarmness? I don't get that. It may, and I don't, I, don't, I don't condemn them or judge them. They, they actually ended up getting another job. He told me we're moving shortly, and, and I can understand that. They didn't want to transfer churches. We, we got a month left before they moved to another part of the state. But I still don't understand why people would come to a spirit-filled church and get what they need and go back to lukewarmness. It almost sounds like you're using God. 
You know, that's what it sounds like to me. But that goes on more and more and more. And I further don't understand why a church that did at one point have a move of the Holy Ghost and have the gifts of the Spirit, why you would dare dial it back. Why would you dial God back just to have more flesh come? The ends does not justify the means. The ends never justifies the means. If, if you dial back the Holy Ghost to draw more people so you can then dial it back up, you're just gonna run those people back off. They're not actually gonna get help. But you have to let their heart be hungry enough for God that they come to get whatever you have. You know, the hospitals don't dial back their procedures to get more patients. And the universities don't dial back their standard to get more students. And the military doesn't dial back its standards to get more recruits. And the SEALs don't dial back their standards to get more candidates. Thank God they don't. Because anytime you start dialing back any kind of standard, you start losing and you start killing things. Aren't you glad that the airlines don't dial back their maintenance standards to save money? Yeah. And aren't you glad that uh, your hospitals don't dial back their standards to cut costs too? No, anytime you dial back standards, you're only going to hurt people. It's, it's, a, it's a shameful thing. So here's our last little section. Other terms for the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Lots of scriptures to back this up. You should know me. I don't preach what I think. If I do preach it, I say this is what I think. You can disagree if you want. But I'm always going to give you lots and lots of Bible. I, I still laugh about the one time I had a young couple in my office, and they told me, we think we should leave this church. Why? You don't use much scripture. Really? I said, have you ever looked at any of our curriculum? There's at least 30, 40 verses on every one of the curriculum you write. Well, you, Sunday, you didn't turn to many scriptures. I said, if you'll get the CD, I probably quoted 50 scriptures. I said, furthermore, you're not theologically trained. There's a thing called homiletics, and there's an actually scientific theological preaching method called a textual sermon where you take only one verse, you read the one verse, and from there you expound it. Furthermore, what about Jesus reading the book of Isaiah the prophet? When he read it, closed it, sat down and taught. Jesus didn't... He turned to 15 passages. So it's just ignorance, immaturity. They just wanted to leave, find something more comfortable. And that's what they did. Other terms for the baptism of the Holy Ghost. It's called the gift of the Holy Ghost. This is in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 11 all use the same term, the gift of the Holy Ghost. Thank God for the Holy Ghost. It's not called the gift of Jesus. It's not called the gift of salvation. It's called the gift of the Holy Ghost. Peter said in Acts 2, he said, repent and be baptized and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Repent, be baptized. That's salvation. Then you get the Holy Ghost. It's called the promise of the Father. Uh, the promise of the Father is quoted in Acts chapter 1. Uh, this spake he of the promise of the Father that they which should believe on him should receive after him. That is on the Holy Ghost. And it's also in Acts chapter 2, 33 and 39. It's called being filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 2, 4, and they were all filled with the Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Holy Spirit gave them the utterance. And Ephesians 1, 8, uh, being spirit, fill, uh, filled with the Spirit. Uh, I'll, actually, that might be Ephesians 5. It be not drunk with wine, where is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Yet it's not Ephesians 1, 8. It's going to be Ephesians 5, 18. That's what happened there. 5, 18. Be not drunk with wine, where is in excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Amen. It's also called the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, as first originally prophesied about in the book of Joel. 
That's awesome. Way before Jesus Christ came, Joel was talking about the Lord pouring out of his spirit upon all flesh and young men prophesying, old men seeing visions and dreams and handmaidens receiving the Holy Ghost. Acts 2, 17 and 18, 10, 45 and eleven fifteen. It's called receiving the Holy Ghost. Like we just saw with Paul at Ephesus, have you received the Holy Ghost? These are all different synonyms based on their context for the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Now, again, I, I like to point out, and I think our next lesson covers it, there are over 115 verses that deal with being baptized in the Holy Ghost and being spirit-filled. That is way more than water baptism and communion combined. If we have so many scriptures building this doctrine, why would we not have this in every church except there's a willful ignorance, a willful blindness, or just a great falling away? I understand doctrinal differences. I understand theolog theological and what have you, but the, what breaks my heart is to consider churches that were once spirit-filled, that once operated the gifts of the spirit, purposely drying them up and not looking to open up to more of them. I don't understand that. We've got to be willing as spirit-filled Christians in these last days to pray in the spirit more than ever, to talk about it, to not be ashamed of the gift of tongues. Honestly, America is more open to the gift of tongues than it's ever been. Oral Roberts helped pioneer it, then Carlton Pearson on his television show, and then Jimmy Swaggart, and then, of course, all the last 30 years of, of charismatic churches, and just about every Christian has been to a spirit-filled church at some point and has at least heard it, and at least they recognize, well, you know what, I don't know if I believe in it or agree with it, but I've been around it, and so I'm not so weirded out by it anymore. We, we are presumptuous to think people won't want it. Well... It's not our problem if they do or don't want it. Jesus said you got to have it. Don't go anywhere till you be endued with power from on high. After that, the Holy Ghost comes upon you. Then you shall be witnesses for me in Judea and Jerusalem, or Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, then the uttermost parts of the world. It's a commandment from Jesus Christ. And here we have five different terms that it's called with multiple uh, confirmations of it being used that way. And this is just what we're dealing with. I want you to have this doctrine in you. I want you to know it backwards and forwards. These verses haven't changed. You're all spirit-filled Christians. You all pray in the spirit. Uh, you ought to be able to defend it, teach it, and encourage people with it. That statistics show us or tell us that the spirit-filled segment of the Christian body is the fastest-growing portion of the body of Christ. Most of your other denominations are shriveling up and dying. Most of your major hardline denominations are, are windling down and dying, but the spirit-filled segment is the fastest growing. And one of the things I love, even going to Africa, I was telling somebody this yesterday. We were in Uganda one time and prayed for about maybe eight or 10 people to get spirit-filled after the service. And I actually had to, I had to bring in one of the pastors and I said, can you tell me, is she praying in your language or tongues? Because this sounds like tongues to me. And he said, no, that's Lugandan. That's our language. I said, well, I've prayed in this one before. That's why it sounds like tongues to me because I've prayed in this. And so then she got it, and I said, well, I've prayed in that one too. Because <laughs> it's diversities of tongues. What's so cool is even traveling overseas, they get spirit-filled, sounds like they're in your home church. Because it's the same spirit working the same gifting all in all. Amen. So the Bible calls the baptism of the Holy Spirit many things, but evil isn't one of them. Amen. Father, we thank you for this second lesson on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Father, may these truths resonate in our heart. May we be emboldened by them and not ashamed. Give us people hungry for more of God 
And may we lead them in the baptism of the Holy Ghost and pray with them and show them the scriptures. We thank you for this great power and gift working in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We have uh, seven more lessons. We start talking about the five bad doctrines debunked. And then we start talking about tongues and interpretation, why you have to have interpretation, when you need interpretation, when you don't need interpretation. So we're just getting going here. If you've got lots of questions, email me or text me. We'll see if we can't resolve it. But uh, don't judge this lesson on just two of them. We've got seven more lessons to go.